I'm back with another Bible study slash devotional. I'm super excited to share some things I've been geeking out about with you all. So I recently read through the New Testament and I did that in the message paraphrase because I love Eugene Peterson and he was really, really smart. And I have just come up to Revelation. Now, right before I started Revelation 1, I was at a church as a guest worship leader and the speaker that day listed off all these names that Jesus is called in the Bible. And one of those was the faithful witness. And that stuck out to me because I haven't dived into that one. There are other names for Jesus that I kind of knew what it meant. And I understood the references in the Old and New Testaments, like anointed one or whatever. But the faithful witness, I don't know, it just stuck out and I just got curious about it. So I started researching what that might mean, what it might be referring to, why the author of Revelation, John, might be choosing that language in that introductory blurb. And I would love to share with you guys some of the things I found. So one of the reasons I love the book of Revelation is that it's very worshipful. It was towards the end of John's ministry and life. He was hanging out with the Holy Spirit every day, all day on the island of Patmos. And you can just tell that there's a level of adoration and worship and awe throughout the book that only comes from intimacy with the person Jesus. And it's inspiring to me every time I read it. So first, I want to share with you Eugene Peterson's intro to the book of Revelation because Eugene Peterson is also very worshipful in it. And he kind of feels the same way about the book that I do. Eugene Peterson says this, the Bible ends with a flourish, vision and song, doom and deliverance, terror and triumph. The rush of color and sound image and energy leaves us reeling. But if we persist through the initial confusion and read on, We begin to pick up the rhythms, realize the connections, and find ourselves enlisted as participants in a multidimensional act of Christian worship. John of Patmos, a pastor of the late first century, has worship on his mind, is preeminently concerned with worship. The vision, which is the revelation, comes to him while he is at worship on a certain Sunday on the Mediterranean island of Patmos. He's responsible for a circuit of churches on the mainland whose primary task is worship. Worship shapes the human community in response to the living God. I love that sentence, so I'm going to repeat it. Worship shapes the human community in response to the living God. If worship is neglected or perverted, our communities fall into chaos or under tyranny. Our times are not propitious for worship. The times never are. The world is hostile to worship. The devil hates worship. As the revelation makes clear, worship must be carried out under conditions decidedly uncongenial to it. Some Christians even get killed because they worship. John's revelation is not easy reading. Besides being a pastor, John is a poet, fond of metaphor and symbol, image and illusion, passionate in his desire to bring us into the presence of Jesus, believing and adoring. 
but the demands he makes on our intelligence and imagination are well rewarded, for in keeping company with John, our worship of God will almost certainly deepen in urgency and joy. So that's just an awesome setup for the book. So now I'm going to read Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8, and we'll talk about it. All right, here we go. Revelation, a revealing of Jesus, the Messiah. God gave it to make plain to his servants what is about to happen. He published and delivered it by angel to his servant, John. And John told everything he saw, God's word, the witness of Jesus Christ. How blessed is the reader, how blessed the hearers and the keepers of these oracle words, all the words written in this book. Time is just about up. I, John, am writing this to the seven churches in Asia province. All the best to you from the God who is the God who wasn't the God about to arrive. And from the seven spirits assembled before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, loyal witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of all earthly things. And then he writes this little poem, glory and strength to Christ who loves us, who's who blood washed our sins from our lives, who made us a kingdom priest for his father forever. And yes, he's on his way, riding in the clouds. He'll be seen by every eye. Those who mocked and kill him, killed him will see him. People from all nations and times will tear their clothes and lament. Here's the last verse of today's chunk. It's verse eight. It says, the master declares, I am A to Z. I'm the God who is the God who was and the God about to arrive. I'm the sovereign strong. So that was one through eight in the message. Now, this whole chapter just gives me goosies. And I feel such this sense of reverence just at this description of Jesus and at this self-revealing that Jesus is telling us uh, about who he is and about how powerful and holy and worthy he is. So I don't want to skip over the, the Bible portion of the devotion today. So I would like to read it again from my uh, life application study Bible, which is the NLT. So that was the message. This is the NLT. And it's just eight verses. Then we'll dive in. Okay. So Revelation chapter one, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He made us a kingdom of priests for God, his father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven. Everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will, will mourn for him. Yes, amen. Quote, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I'm the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. 
End quote. Okay. This phrase caught me that Jesus is described as the faithful witness. And as I dove into commentaries and blogs, I found that there were kind of three different explanations or theories about this phrase. Number one, I'll call it the image theory. This is the thought that Jesus has been loyal to the image-bearing mantle that was placed on him. So Jesus being the anointed one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, part of the requirements for his role were that he would perfectly bear the image of God. Now, every human is an image-bearer, but then we all fall short of that, the glory of God, right? And we fall short of living like God or representing his character. So this image bearer, the anointed one, the Savior, is going to more perfectly embody and represent the image of God so that he can bring reconciliation, you know, to the to God and to the world. Now, in Revelation 3, it kind of seems like it supports this image bearing idea definition of faithful witness, okay? Because in Revelation 3.14, these are the words of the Amen, the trusty and faithful and true witness, the origin and beginning and author of God's creation. So he's completed this creation plan in this longer description of the true and faithful witness in Revelation 3. So that's another reference to Jesus as the faithful witness in two chapters. So kind of what this means is that Jesus perfectly reveals God and his salvation to a, a darkened world or a sin-fallen world. So that's the image theory. Number two, there was a lot of pontification online about the legal theory about this phrase. The legal theory would be that it was well known that a reliable witness's testimony had the power to convince a court, right? A truthful, faithful witness would be a powerful witness. So Jesus's testimony is about the truth of God, namely the fact that he's God's son and that God and him are bringing salvation to the entire world, right? That's what he's witnessing. And we know, of course, the Greek word for witness is martyr or martis, I guess, which is where we get the word martyr. And martyr just simply was a word that became a way to describe people who wouldn't recant their claims about Jesus, right? Even though it was going to get them killed. And of course, we think of Jesus too, how he was willing to lay down his life for us to support the good news that he was announcing. So there's this verse in 1 Timothy 6 that relates to this legal theory about the phrase faithfulness. It says, Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, right? So what did Jesus say before Pontius Pilate? He said, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And that's in John 18. So you have Jesus witnessing, even though he knows that that testimony is going to help get him killed, right? Now, the book of Revelation was sent to a group of churches that were under heavy persecution in the Roman Empire under Domitian, I guess you would say it, Domitian. So John was trying to remind them in the revelation that there's no reason to doubt the, the the trustworthiness of Jesus's claims. Just like he was a loyal witness to the gospel, they can be too. And that um, Jesus would always indeed be alive and well. It would continue to be the same all-powerful, loving son of God. So you've got the image-bearing theory 
number one. And then you've got the legal theory, number two. And then I also found a lot of people writing about what I will call the trustworthiness theory. And that is basically that we can rely on everything that Jesus ever said. He keeps his promises. John 14, 6 calls Jesus the truth, meaning he embodies the highest form of what is true, correct, right, holy, righteous, undeniable, authoritative, and everlasting. Like if he promises to be with us forever, he will be with us forever. If he says he's going to rise again on a third day, that's what he does. So that's the trustworthiness theory. And of course, I don't think we have to pick one. I think it means probably all three of those things. And it makes sense that there's a depth to that definition and that all those concepts are biblical and they're all encompassed possibly in the phrase faithful witness. So I feel like I do have a richer definition of that term, that descriptor of Jesus, having read through all this Bible study stuff and geeking out about it. But I also probably am just scratching the surface of what it means. So another person that's a really good resource for explaining the book of Revelation, what it even is, why it's in the Bible, what it's talking about, is a scholar named Michael Heiser. I recently read a book by him called The Unseen Realm, which I highly recommend. And it explained a lot of the supernatural realm in the Old Testament in places where you may miss it, but it's referenced like a lot more than we think. So it was a really cool book. He's a really smart scholar and he has a podcast called The Naked Bible. Uh, I believe he passed away last year or recently. So I subscribed recently to this podcast and I went all the way back to when they started it in like 2015 and I've been listening through and he does have a series on Revelation that I think he recorded uh, a few years ago. And so I referenced his episode on Revelation 1 And I would like to share a little bit of that with you guys as well. So this is less about the phrase faithful witness and more just about what the book of Revelation is. He says that John, the author of Revelation, frequently dipped into the Old Testament to create the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, right? Apocalypse means revealing. That's the Greek word for the book. Okay, so he says, understanding his strategies in doing so helps us understand what the book is saying. And if we understand what he's citing or referencing and what he does with it and why, that will help us understand what John's trying to communicate in the book, right? And that it's going to matter for the way we interpret the book. And of course, you may know that there's a ton of different interpretations for this book out there, aren't there? So he says there's this really good book called The Old Testament in the Book of Revelation by Steve Moyes. Now, I've never read that, but if Michael Heiser is referencing it in his study on Revelation, then I would imagine it's a solid recommendation. And the book states that we can look at the Old Testament and also look at contemporaneous Jewish writings, like from that time, the intertestamental period, when John was writing this book, and see how those writers were thinking about the Old Testament, because it's probably similar to how John would be thinking about the Old Testament. And that would help us understand the references and allusions that he's making to the Hebrew scriptures when he writes Revelation. Michael Heiser also mentioned another book that he highly recommended, and it's called John's Use of the Old Testament in the Book of Revelation, and that's by Beale. So Heiser says there are few, if any, and some would say no, explicit quotations of the Old Testament in the Book of Revelation. 
And he says, when you, what you get instead is John drawing words and phrases from different parts of the Old Testament or the same section of the Old Testament and using that to create his own original content. So it doesn't have any explicit quotations. It has allusions. The book of Revelation does this more than any other book. Then on the episode, Heiser quoted Moise, Steve Moise, and he said, quote, unlike other New Testament writers, it would appear that John's primary interest was not the Torah, but the prophetic literature, along with the worship language of the Psalms, which reminds me of exactly what Eugene Peterson discovered in the book. So Heiser explains, he has a chart in the book illustrating this. So by his count, there are 82 allusions to the Torah, right? The first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. There are 97 allusions to the Psalms. There are 122 allusions to parts of Isaiah. There are 48 to Jeremiah, 83 to Ezekiel, 74 to Daniel, and 73 from like all the minor prophets put together. So the Torah, so Michael Heiser is like, the Torah is dwarfed in terms of John's interest in what is going on here. John is really tracking with the prophets, prophetic literature, and the Psalms which is outside of the prophetic literature. And the most prominent of all of them is Isaiah. Just in terms of citations, it's Isaiah first, Psalms second, Ezekiel third, and then the five books of the Pentateuch, Pentateuch after that. But he cites Daniel, the single book Daniel, 74 times. So that's significant too. So John, in writing Revelation, almost has the same number of allusions to Daniel than he does the first five books of the Torah. So I know this was a little more geeky than some of my other episodes so far. <laughs> and I appreciate you hanging in there because I think Revelation is one of those books that we have to like make sure we are grasping some level of context for. But like I said, I just felt like the Holy Spirit was highlighting this phrase faithful witness to me. And here is what I have put together so far about why. So this is my little personal application story at the end of this devotion, okay? So when you think about Romans 12 too, which is where Paul instructs the Roman church to not conform to the pattern of the world that they see around them, not do things the way that others do, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind so that they'll be able to know God's will. They'll be able to experience God's will, right? I think that God is doing that in my life in a really interesting way. And he's been teaching me about the mind and the brain and how we have a, a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. And we have more direct control about a lot of our conscious thoughts than our subconscious thoughts. So once they're back there, they get autopiloted. A lot of them are real old and automatic habits, right? But God made our brains with neuroplasticity, which is the scientific description of the fact that he made them renewable, transformable, right? So Romans 12, 2 is basically instructing us to use our conscious mind to meditate on higher things, the things of God, the things that are praiseworthy and deserving of our attention and good and holy and right and true, which will eventually influence our subconscious minds. Now, what has probably gone on with me in my life is that I've got kind of a highly sensitive nervous system for whatever reason. And my subconscious brain was a little bit partially stuck in 
sympathetic nervous system mode, right? Instead of being in parasympathetic, which is like rest and digest, calm, the state we're supposed to live most of our lives in unless we're running from a bear. Mine was just always kind of going. And a lot of it was fear of man, which is called the functional fawn response after some sort of childhood trauma or whatever it was. I don't even know when it started, but I recognize that there's been a lot of something other than peace going on in my subconscious mind and in my nervous system, which is an extension of my brain. And especially in my guts, which of course you guys know I have a digestive disease, which I think is basically originated in a lot of mind-body syndrome, right? The body is just doing what we, what our, what our brains tell it to. And our brains are really just trying to protect us. So it's nobody's fault, but there's a way to retrain my subconscious by being diligent in my conscious, which is basically science proving the Bible. So that's why I love it. Some of you, it might not be about changing your overly sensitive or overly active nervous system or immune system. Maybe yours is more about changing some false beliefs, some bad theology that maybe you picked up from some family dysfunction or some fundamentalist church or somewhere along the way that um, God is calling you gently to relook at and rethink and let the truth of His Word and of who He is and of His presence, His Spirit, be a faithful witness to you about the actual gospel, which is the love of God rescuing the world. I want to conclude this little Bible study today by saying that Jesus has been a steady, faithful, loyal witness to the truth, to his own constant goodness during this process of my mind renewal. And that's been really cool. He's helping me be transformed by the renewing of my mind. He's teaching me how it works and he's helping me do it. And I'm so grateful and I'm just so fascinated. Like, this journey with God is freaking fun and, and intriguing and engaging and exciting, you know? It's like me and God are truly partnering in my healing journey. And it is reconciling how, it's like putting me finally how he created me to operate. Like we're not supposed to be stuck in fight or flight all the freaking time. Like he's teaching me how to enter into his peace which was his original plan. So it's all like this, this guide that I'm apprenticing under, this best friend who loves me unconditionally and gets me completely, is the faithful witness to the gospel he preaches of reconciliation of the world to God. And, and in my case, what that looks like is entering into this journey to teach my subconscious brain and my nervous system peace, his peace. I don't want some other form of counterfeit peace. Like I want the peace of God that passes understanding, meaning it sinks into your subconscious eventually. I, I think that's what he's promising me. And I think he's faithful to what he's witnessing. I think he's going to heal me and he is healing me. I know I'm going to get to a place that I'm free from fear. I know that's his will for me, right? Because fear is the pattern of this world. And he's calling us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we can know his will. Well, his will for you is peace. His will for you is to be able to accept his love. His will for you is to prosper in every way, even as your soul prospers. I don't mean to trigger anyone who's come out of the prosperity gospel. Obviously, there's different meanings of words, and I want to be careful with that verse because it has been misused. But truly prospering is flourishing in him, 
being able to have an intimate, close, safe relationship with the Holy Spirit who is completely good and for you and not against you. And I'm excited about this journey. I think it's really cool that I heard this phrase, faithful witness, and then I came across it again in my reading and and that I got to geek out about it with you guys this week. So thank you for listening and watching. If you're listening to the podcast, make sure you subscribe and I'll see you all next time. Bye.